0: got a Bible open to Psalm 130 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 130, a series called Worship and Wisdom, bouncing back and forth between different psalms and proverbs, taking a look at what God has to teach us uh, about himself and about who we are, how to walk wisely, but also how to worship well. Uh, the psalms, as we've said before, uh, oftentimes are a glimpse into the spiritual relationship or the real life relationship someone has with the living God. Now, they give us a a behind the scenes look at someone's wrestling with God or petitions to God, intercessions before God, their confession before God, all the ways that they're interacting, interfacing, singing to God, praying to God. And this psalm that we're going to look at this morning is no different. There's oftentimes in the psalms, what you see is the, the authors inhaling reality, right? They're not denying reality. They're living in a real world. They're facing real issues with real burdens and real problems. So they inhale reality all day long. And then what they do in the psalm is they just Breathe out, they exhale theology. The the things that are most true about themselves and the things that are the ultimate truths about who God is, the world in which we live. And this psalm is no different. So Psalm 130 is where we are this morning. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, you can follow along on the screen as we read it together. The psalmist writes these words in verse one in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." You know, when I was in third grade, I can remember going to the eye doctor for the first time and being diagnosed with a severe case of nearsightedness. Um, I remember sitting in the desk in, class, in the classroom and trying to look at the, what the teacher was doing on the board, and I just couldn't make it out. It was foggy and fuzzy. I never really could focus and get clarity on what was being written there. And so my parents took me, and they put those big things over your eyes, where they go, one, two, right? They just keep flipping back and forth. Well, what about Three or A or Z or right, seven. Right? They just keep flipping back and forth on all these lenses and finally at the end of the day when they dialed in my prescription, uh, I was incredibly nearsighted and they were shocked that I actually could see anything more than about a few inches in front of my face. And so to this day, right, I still have to depend on corrective lenses, whether they be glasses or contacts because I still can't see more than about right here. Clearly, I can make out objects. Right? Men look like trees walking around. Um, I can make out a few colors here and there, but without corrective lenses, I'm, I'm like right here because I have a severe case of nearsightedness. And I want you to know that what plagues my eyes also plagues every one of our souls. Every single one of us are born into this world with what I would call nearsighted souls. They can only see what's right in front of them. They don't have, we don't have farsighted lenses of faith to see what lies over the horizon, but we only have nearsighted, we have near-sighted souls. And a nearsighted soul ultimately makes decisions based on the moment where they find themselves right in that minute, right? In that moment, what will bring me the greatest pleasure? And in that moment, what will help me avoid utmost pain? And so I make decisions based on where I find myself in that moment. And oftentimes with nearsighted souls, because we make decisions on the basis of where we are in the moment, right? What will bring me pleasure? What will help me avoid pain? We end up backing ourselves into a corner and experiencing consequences of our sin. You ever been there before? Because you were only making a decision based on what you could see just right here, right here. And what was gonna bring you pleasure in that moment was gonna help you avoid pain in that moment and you end up violating the will of God, the law of God, turning your back on him and pursuing satisfaction, significance, security, pleasure, avoiding pain in something other than God. It backs us into a corner and we we, we find ourselves sinning, sinning against God. And when we do, oftentimes we experience what we, the Bible calls conviction, right? Conviction falls on us and it feels like we're, we're being crushed at times under the weight of God's conviction in our lives. Just like our first parents, whenever Eve takes her the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband and they both take of it and their eyes are open, what do they do in that moment? They're flooded with shame and they hide, don't they, they try and cover up and conceal themselves. And God comes looking for them. And I want you to know that because of the nearsightedness of our souls, oftentimes whenever we are experiencing the consequences of our own sin, we end up trying to cover, conceal, deflect, blame, shift, and hide as well. But that is not how the psalmist responds in Psalm 130. The psalmist is plagued with the same nearsighted soul that you and I have, And yet whenever he finds himself under the weight of his sin, when he finds himself under the weight of God's conviction, whenever he finds himself experiencing consequences and backed into the corner because he's made a decision based on his nearsightedness, he doesn't respond the same way that our first parents responded or the same way that you and I responded. See, some of us, we get backed into a corner and we believe, well, there's nothing good in the hand of God for me. Like, all God has in his hand for me is a cup of wrath. He doesn't have a cup of blessing. And I want you to know this morning that what this psalm teaches us is quite the contrary. And I want you to walk out of this room this morning believing that. And so that's what I'm aiming for this morning. And so let's get after it in the text a little bit for a while, okay? So what what, what the text teaches us is this, is whenever we find ourselves under the consequences of our sin, backed into a corner because of our nearsightedness, that what we must do, the first movement is not to run away from God, not to try and go around God, but to go through God and to God by calling to God for mercy, crying out to him. It's exactly what this psalmist does, doesn't he? In verse one, in verse one, the, in verses one and two, the psalmist cries. He says, I'm crying out to the Lord out of the depths. Sometimes whenever we find ourselves under the weight of sin and under the weight of the consequences of our sin, it feels like we're sinking to the bottom of the ocean and the waves are crashing over us. And the psalmist says, I find myself to be, of my soul to be afflicted. It feels like it's withering. It feels like I'm being crushed and drowning. But what he did in that moment was he didn't try and swim to the top himself. He cried out to the Lord. He called out to the very God that he had spurned, the very God that he had turned aside from. He cried out to him. In fact, the word cried out to the Lord literally means this. It means to call or to utter a loud noise for help or to put in a plea in court. In other words, the psalmist is saying this. He says he feels himself to be on trial before the Lord and he cries out to him through tears and groans, loud noises for help that God might extend to him mercy. That God might be merciful to him. Have you ever cried to the Lord? Have you ever been so deep in guilt and so weighed down with the consequences of your own sin that you barely had words to speak before God in prayer? You ever been there where it feels like you're like a tween going through puberty? You know what I'm saying? Because you, you, your voice keeps cracking in prayer because you're, you're fighting back emotion and tears because you're broken over your sin. That, that God's felt presence was so distant in your life that all you could do was raise your voice and ask him just to come close and just to listen, to turn his ear and be attentive to your plea for mercy. Have you ever cried to the Lord? Now listen, there's, some of us in this room may believe, well, that's reserved for like the really bad people who live in Huntsville, right? In, in the prison, <laughs> Right? That's, that's who that's reserved for. Or for folks who when they first come to faith in Jesus, they come under conviction of sin and they're converted to faith in Christ. But I want to push back on that thought for just a moment this morning because in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are examples of godly people who are broken before God over their sin. Think about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a godly man who's bringing the word of God to God's people, he's a prophet of God's people, he's preaching and proclaiming to God's people, confronting their sin, challenging sinners in the midst of the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes before God and he has this vision of God where he sees God high and exalted, he's seated on the throne, the train of his robe is filling the temple, the angels are fluttering around his head, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here this prophet of God, the man of God who had proclaimed the words of God, finds himself on his face before God, saying, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I have made vows that I have not kept. I have said things that are not true about myself or about God, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The land is full of this. But Isaiah doesn't just say, well, the land is full of this. I'm innocent of it. He says, no, I'm included. He cries to God. Or Fast forward in the New Testament, and you get to the Apostle Paul. Now Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, right? He was persecuting the church. He stands there and he gives approval to the first martyr in church history outside of Jesus as Stephen is stoned there in the early part of the book of Acts. And he's giving approval to that, cheering it on, persecuting the church, pushing them out, trying to snub them out. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ, and he's blinded. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he comes to faith in Christ, he's converted, and he has these scales come over his eyes, the scales remove. He begins now to minister before God's people. He begins to plant churches and preach the gospel. And as he moves from city to city, planting church after church, he raises up men like Timothy in Ephesus and leaves them behind to pastor those churches. And then he writes back to them. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, says here's a trustworthy saying that's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners not to save the self-righteous, not to save those who act like they have it all together, not to save those who have like Facebook perfect moments day after day after day after day and they project this image of having everything tied up in a nice neat little bow, but Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then Paul says one of the most astounding statements in all the Bible, he says, of whom I am the foremost. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say of whom I was The foremost. He's not talking past tense. He's talking present tense. Paul's not thinking, back then, whenever I was persecuting the church, I was the foremost of sinners. Back then, whenever I was trying to snub out the church, I was the foremost of sinners. He says, no, even now, as I preach the gospel and raise the church that I once persecuted and sought to destroy, now I am am the foremost of all these sinners that God has come to save. And you might be scratching your head going, what? What? right, the prophet of God, the apostle of Christ, woe is me, I'm the foremost of sinners, why are they saying these things, and here's why, I had a professor in seminary say it to me this way one time, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell your life, when you're converted to faith in Jesus, he comes in, and he moves in, and he begins to unpack his bags, right, and the Holy Spirit has lots of bags to unpack, right, he begins to unpack bags in rooms, of. when was the last time you moved, Right? Anybody have like PTSD from that experience? Right, When you move into a new home and all of a sudden the movers show up, they just dump everything and everything's sitting in piles in different rooms and you just have to go in and just take one room at a time right, and just begin to knock it out, got like grind through it and begin to hang stuff on the walls and put stuff in cabinets and, and position furniture in the room and run whatever wires you need to be run and, and decorate the bathroom and paint while well. you begin to organize and clean and, and structure everything in the home. And that's what the Holy Spirit does whenever he becomes to, comes to indwell us. As he moves in, he begins to unpack and he begins to order and he begins to structure and he begins to put things in their proper place in our life. He begins to take things that have risen too high in our lives and bring them down and take God and exalt him in the person of Christ in our lives. The Holy Spirit begins to unpack his bags, but listen, it doesn't happen in a week, Doesn't happen in a month. It happens over a lifetime. And what you discover as you grow in your relationship with God over the course of a lifetime is that you begin to see as the Holy Spirit continues to unpack and order and organize your life is that there are still rooms. There are still hallways. There are still closets. In fact, there are even sometimes cavernous spaces that you didn't realize were still sitting in the dark with big piles in the corner. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. See, this crying to the Lord over the brokenness of our sin isn't reserved for the really bad people who have raped and pilfered and murdered. This crying out to the Lord for mercy is for all of God's people as lights begin to come on in rooms of our lives that we didn't even know were still dark. And yet, for many of us, this experience at times is foreign to us. It's foreign to us, and here's one of the reasons I think it's foreign to us, is because instead of going to God and through God, what we want to do is try and go around God. We don't want to have to deal with God as we experience guilt and conviction and the weight of our sin. And a part of that has been ingrained with us from the culture in which we live, because we live in a culture that shouts about grace, right? We scream at the rooftops about grace, but we are silent about guilt or we whisper kind of in back rooms about guilt but not very publicly do we talk about guilt. We shout about grace, but we're silent about guilt. But I want you to consider something. When you remove, when you try and remove guilt from the collective conscience of a culture, what you're left with is not the sparkling gem that is the grace of God, but you're left with a lump of coal because it's only under the pressure of God's conviction, the conviction of God and the guilt that we experience on account of our sin, that grace becomes something beautiful that captures our attention, that embraces captures our affections. Only whenever we experience guilt does grace have any meaning to us. Only whenever we come under compassion does the compassion of God shine brightly in our lives. And yet we try and circumvent God and try and, instead of of coming to God, we try and go around him. And the one major way that we do that is by trying to medicate our guilt. It's trying to medicate it. And we medicate it in all kinds of ways. Instead of crying to God and going through him, we medicate our guilt and try and go around him. Listen to the Centers for Disease Control in 2015, or, or I'm sorry, in 2016 reported that overdose deaths involving prescription opioids have quadrupled since 1999. Quadrupled. And so have sales of these prescription drugs. From 1999 to 2015, more than 183,000 people have died in the U.S. from overdoses related to prescription opioids. Now, I want you to consider something. I'm not saying that in every, case this is the instant, or in every instance this is the case, right? But consider something. Over the course of, those, of these last 20 years, right, as opioid and prescription drug abuse and use has risen, what has been on decline is any objective standards of morality and reality conforming to God's law. In other words, we live in a culture that has said, listen, there is no reason to feel guilty about your chosen lifestyle. You just embrace whatever works for you, and you just keep moving down the track. And so over the course of time, God's law has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller in the life of this culture, and drug abuse and addiction and prescription pain meds have risen and risen higher and higher. Now listen, in every instance, this may not be the case, but in some instances, here's what I think may be going on. I think in some instances there are people who say, my culture tells me that I have no reason to feel any degree of guilt based off of my chosen lifestyle, but I do. And I don't know how to deal with it. And so I just want to numb my conscience. That's the only way I know how to deal with this. Like my culture says there's no reason to feel any guilt, but I do and I can't escape it. And so what may have started for some as legitimately taking prescription pain meds for physical pain in their life has now morphed into continuing the addiction to the pain meds to numb the emotional and spiritual pain because they're facing the reality of guilt they don't know how to escape from. Others, their alcoholism or their meth addiction or their crack cocaine addiction may have started the same way for them, trying to numb their conscience. They medicate through substances. Others may medicate through merchandise, <laughs> right? I, I don't think the massive amounts of consumer debt that we see within our culture are just because people want nicer stuff. Oftentimes, they're trying to distract themselves from the real condition of their souls. Listen, I might get in trouble. Maybe not. When, some of the ladies in the, in, in, within our culture, some women within our culture, like their, their attention to fashion and decoration and all those kinds of things, right, style might just be they want to look good. They want their house to look nice. But for some, for some, their paint colors and their clothing choices, they're not just mere neutral things in their life. They're an attempt to not deal with the real inner reality of their soul and their guilt before God on account of conviction that they experience whenever they sin and back themselves into a corner because of the nearsightedness of their souls. Right? You can cover all your blemishes with makeup and moo-moos. I don't know what moo-moos are. I think there's something, right? Some kind of clothing attire that women wear. You can cover all those things up but it doesn't change the fact of what's underneath. And men as well, we medicate at times through tools and toys and hobbies. Some men, their, their, their incessant attention on fantasy sports and stats and, 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 and hobbies is just an attempt to cover over, not deal with the real condition of their inner life. We might medicate through merchandise, we might medicate through media. Listen, we live in a culture fascinated with little smart devices, watches and phones and tablets right, even artificial intelligence, right, robots who can do things for you, we've all seen the movie, we know how it ends, it doesn't end well for humanity, right, (laughs) I don't know why we keep walking down that road, but our fascination with these smart devices, those, those devices at times make life more convenient in the world in which we live, but listen, they also make it more complex, they make it way more complex, and one of the ways they make it more complex is because you can focus all of your energy and attention, f- like funneled down into paying attention to someone else's outer life, and you can completely neglect your own inner life. Some focus through med- medicate through media, and some medicate through restitution. You know what restitution is? It's payback, it's paying someone back for injury, loss, or an offense. And there are some people who try to deal with all the badness they sense and the guilt they feel on it by their goodness. I'm just gonna work it out. I'm just gonna pay God back. I'm gonna do enough and be enough to where God would be obligated to accept me. That is a miserable existence. See, what this text is teaching us is this when the psalmist cries to the Lord out of the depths of his own guilt and conviction on account of his sin, what this text is teaching us is that you and I need to stop trying to medicate what only God can eradicate in your life. You need to stop trying to find relief from those things that only God can remove, that only God can take away. You stop trying to cover over and conceal that which only God can cut out of your life. So don't try and go around him through medicating in various ways, but the author of the psalm says, go through him, go to him in the midst of your despair and plead to him for mercy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on because there are times, right, whenever we, I don't know if you've experienced this before, if you're a believer and walking with God for a number of years, in which you come under conviction of sin and you come before God in confession You agree with him on on what it is that you have done, how it's violated his will. You come before him and you confess and you plead him for mercy out of the depths of your soul. And there are times in which God in a moment speaks a word and there is relief. But there are times in which you sit in that for a season and you continue to plead and plead and plead with God in prayer. And so the psalmist says, listen, I'm waiting for the Lord, I'm waiting for him, I've cried to him, now I'm waiting for him, and that's the second movement in responding to the conviction of sin, the guilt that you feel in your soul whenever you've been very nearsighted in the way that you've lived, is that you wait on him. In verse five, the author says this, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, Listen, to wait for God is to eagerly expect him to show up. (laughs) That's what it is to wait on God, is to eagerly expect him to show up. And what the psalmist is waiting for is this. He's waiting for God to raise him from the depths of his guilt over his sin and for the felt presence of God and the nearness of God to return to his life He's waiting for that felt distance that was created to be closed and that gap to be be shut and for the joy and peace that only the nearness of God can bring in life to return to him as he has fellowship with God and enjoys God. That's what he's waiting for. Now notice what he says, my soul waits, present tense. He doesn't say my soul will wait sometime in the future or my soul has waited in the past, but it waits right now. In other words, the psalmist is saying this, my plea to God for mercy has gone up to him but I haven't yet taken hold of that relief that he has promised, and so I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting for him to come. I'm not turning to aside to him. I'm not trying to go around him. I'm going to him and through him, and I'm waiting for him to show up. I'm waiting for the relief. I'm waiting for the nearness of God to return to my life, the felt presence of God, to experience that again. The joy and peace of God's presence. He's right now waiting. And notice how he's waiting. He says, more than the watchman for the morning. And that image gives us two things about how the psalmist was waiting and how you and I need to wait as well. First of all, we wait with intensity. With intensity. Listen, there were few things in the ancient world that were waited for more intensely than the morning by the watchman because in the watches of the night from the time that the sun sets to the time that the sun rose the next morning, there were watchmen who were positioned on the towers around the cities looking out across the landscape for impending threats, for armies that would come against them and attack them when they were most vulnerable. And so intensely they're waiting for that sun to rise Right, whenever they change watches from from, the su- from sunset to 10 p.m. and 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., Wait, waiting for that sun to come up over the horizon again, they're waiting with an intensity because they're at their most vulnerable. Listen, the most intense I've ever waited for anything was in a, it was in, a, in 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 the waiting room, literally the waiting room, waiting for the surgeon to return out of the operating room for my for my daughter's first cranial vault reconstruction. As I sat there for four hours waiting for the surgery to finish and for the pieces of her skull to be placed back together, I waited. And even though I had friends all around me, there were people that I'd known for years, and they'd come to support and comfort. I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to conversations on my right and on my left, and I'm hearing things that are going on in the room, but my mind was fixed in one place to one space, it was that door that led back to the operating room, waiting for that plastic surgeon to walk out and say, we're done, and everything went well. I was waiting with such a degree of intensity that even whenever he came out and said, hey, everything is good, she's been sent to recovery. Before we got to see her in the PICU, where she recovered for 24 hours before they moved into her room, we were sitting in the PICU waiting room, hadn't seen her yet, and a real a close friend of mine, another pastor uh, that, that I'd known for a, n- a number of years, was sitting to my right, or I'm sorry, to my left, and the doorway was to his left. And we're sitting there, and he's having a conversation with me, and I'm listening to him, and as soon as that nurse walked out and said, Sarah Collins. Like, he was midstreaming conversation. I just got up and left. <laughs> I felt bad about it later. I had to go back and apologize to him. He completely understood, but that's the intensity with which I was waiting. And the author of the psalm says, more intensely than I was waiting for those doors to open to the operating room, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting on him, but it's also awaiting with certainty. With certainty, the watchman had watched enough to know that every twelve to fourteen hours, depending upon the time of the year, that that sun was going to come up again. It was going to rise, and that land that had been plunged into darkness twelve hours before would once again have the radiant light break forth across its landscape. They waited with a degree of certainty, knowing the sun was gonna come and so did the psalmist, knowing that God was going to show up. So waiting for him. So how do you wait for the Lord in those moments in which his felt presence feels so far removed and you feel like you're crushing in the depths under the weight of your own conviction and guilt and sin? Listen to what the psalmist says. I left one part out of verse five when I read it earlier. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. See, wait on, you, the way that you wait on him is by hoping in him. I know that sounds a little bit circular, but let me explain to you what I mean. You wait on him by hoping in him, and particularly hoping in his word, his word of promise. The psalmist says I'm banking my life as I'm waiting with intensity and certainty, waiting on God's nearness to be felt again, waiting on this guilt to be removed and lessened and lightened and assuaged and taken away and cut out and eradicated from my life. I'm waiting on God to do that and I'm waiting on him with certainty by hoping in his word, by hoping in his word See, what this text teaches us is when you're back into a corner experiencing guilt that you cry out to the Lord and you wait on him to bring relief by hoping in his promises. Hoping in his promises. Remember, you're still going to him and through him, not around him, because what you will find is that same thing that Jonah found, right? You'll find the same thing that Jonah found. Whenever Jonah, God comes to Jonah and says, go east, and Jonah says, no, I'm going west, right? The complete opposite direction of where God had sent him, And God caught up with him on the sea and what Jonah discovers, the same thing that you and I will discover when we try and go around him is there is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. There is no refuge from him. You can't escape him. There is no place that you can go as the Psalms teach us where you can hide from his presence but his eyes see every corner of the earth. So there's no refuge from him. You can't find a shelter or shield from him. You can only find a shelter and shield in him. That's what Jonah discovers because he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. He's in the belly of the fish. What does he do? Does he tickle his tonsils and say, "Listen, spew me back out. I got to swim to the top." What does he do? He says, "Out of his distress, he called out to the Lord." He goes through him, doesn't go around him. Listen, and what you and I need to do in those moments is to wait on God by hoping in His Word, by believing the truth about who God says He is and how He would respond. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of these who take refuge in him will be condemned. That God rescues and reaches down and raises up the life of those who are his servants. And that if you would call out to him and cry to him, that he would not turn his back on you and condemn you. Or Psalm 103, 11 to 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love of the Lord toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Whenever it feels like God is far away, whenever it feels like he is distant and that your sin is this massive barrier between you and he and your guilt is crushing you beneath the waves, then you turn to Psalm 103 and you say, As far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance, because as you continue to travel west, east continues to be somewhere out there. As far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance, God has removed my transgressions and sins from me. Even when it doesn't feel like it, I'm going to believe that promise. Psalm 145, verse 17 and following, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And in those moments in which God feels far off removed and distant, that you turn to Psalm 145 and say, when I called on him, whether it feels like it or not in this moment, he is near. And he will save and deliver. You wait on him by hoping in his promise, his word, what he's revealed about himself. And only if you know that will you go to him and through him. Listen, I, I had a really weak moment a few months ago. I was looking at my kids and their kind of droopy faces. Right? You know kids get, sometimes they get really Droopy. And sad and they kind of work the manipulation to kind of pull out of you what they really wanna get from you. And it's been about four years since we've had a dog in our home. And I got really weak. I've repented of that since. But I told my kids after vacation we can look at getting another dog. And my kids were just like singing my praises like, Doing everything I asked them to do, so we come home from vacation, and my wife takes them to a couple of different shelters. We we're gonna to adopt to one instead of buying a puppy, so we adopt this little dog. She's about two or three years old, a little Jack Russell Terrier mix, a Cute little dog. Uh, we 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 had been a while since we had a dog, so we had to stop by Pet Smart and So I met my family there, uh, my wife and two kids, and the dog were in her van. I met them there. We went into Pet Smart. Dogs walking around, you know, just chilling, looking at all the food and toys and everything. So we pick out some food, and we get a little bit of bedding and you know a couple of toys for the dog and all those kinds of things. We put them up in the, in, in the car, and my wife and my daughter and the dog decide, they're, they're, she says, well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll take them home. My son wanted to ride with me, so he rode home with me. Well, my wife and daughter and the dog got home before I did. And they went inside, and they were kind of getting settled, and so my son and I roll up into the driveway, and I walk up to the front door, turn the key, open the door, and the dog was sitting right there. And the dog bolted. <laughs> Out the house. And so here I am, like crunching all the different scenarios of what's about to play out in my head in that moment right so I turn around the dog is at the end of the driveway so I start walking toward the dog well the dog keeps walking away from me like, dog doesn't know me dog has no idea who I am right? I'm just this random dude who showed up at a pet store and walked it around and picked up some food so uh, I start walking to the do- dog and the dog starts walking away right, I start jogging toward the dog dog starts jogging away I start running after the dog. The dog starts running away. So I'm running through Wood Creek right here in jeans, flip-flops, and a button-down shirt as I'm chasing after the dog. You got like teenage kids cutting the grass trying to help me cut her off, right? Eventually this dude rolls up in an explorer and he says, man, hop in. I saw the dog and you and I feel sorry for you. Jump in, I'll help you run, run you down the road. So he drives me down the road. We finally cornered the dog after about 20 minutes of chasing it around the neighborhood. But the reason the dog ran is because he didn't trust me. She didn't know me. She wouldn't come to me. She had no idea whether or not I was gonna take her inside and beat her silly or take her inside and embrace her. If you don't know how God will respond in those moments in which you are sinking under your guilt, you will always try and go around him instead of going to him and through him. And there are three things, and I'm gonna hit them quick because we just gotta move. I'm gonna hit them quick as we close. There are three things in this text, in this psalm, that it tells us that you need to know about God if you're gonna come to him, cry out to him, wait on him, and hope in his word. And the first one is this, is that with him there is steadfast love. There is loyal love. There is deep-rooted covenant love. In the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God tells Hosea, hey, I want you to go take a wife who is a prostitute because the people have prostituted themselves with the gods of the other nations. So he does, he's obedient to God. He goes and takes a wife for himself and they begin to conceive and have children and two of their children's names are just phenomenal names, right? They are not my people and no mercy, right? Because God says, I'm not going to have mercy on you any longer, and you were once my people, but you're living like you're not my people, and so you're not my people any longer. God, in other words, says there's going to be judgment and discipline that comes upon my people on account of their rebellion and chasing after other gods, medicating with other things, going around me as opposed to to me and through me. But God makes a promise in Hosea chapter one. He says, I'm not done with you. In verse 10 he says, yet, even though all this has taken place, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. In other words, they're you're gonna grow. You're gonna continue to have offspring and I'm gonna continue to bless. And in the place that it was said, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. There's a day that's coming in which it was said, you're not my people because you're living that way that I'm gonna receive you back to myself. Out of my loyal, covenant, steadfast, faithful love and mercy. And then in verse 11, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be that day. And then you flip over. In Hosea chapter two, and toward the end of Hosea chapter two, it says, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezebel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. That is steadfast love. That even when we run and run and run and run from God, that he continues to pursue to rescue us out of his steadfast covenant, loyal and faithful love. You'll only get that with him and nowhere else. The second thing this text tells us about God that you must know if you're gonna come to him as opposed to try and go around him is this, that with God, there is plentiful love. Redemption. There is plentiful redemption. Notice the text doesn't say there is reluctant redemption. Uh, You gotta kind of leverage God somehow by your good behavior to him to come down and rescue you. But there is plentiful redemption. God has all the means necessary to rescue you from any mess that you might create for yourself in this life and he has all the means necessary to rescue you from all the mess this world has created and one day he will draw it all to a close and raise you up and rescue you because with him is plentiful redemption. Notice what he says in verse eight as well. In verse eight, he says that he will redeem his people from all their iniquities. Now, some of us, when we read this, we, 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 we stumble at the word all. Like, really, all? Like, really, every, everything? That God will rescue from all of my iniquities? And the answer to that stumbling that you have right now in your mind is that you, some of you are like, you don't know. Huh. You don't know where I've been. You have no idea the shoes that I've walked in, the path that I've walked down. I have not walked down the path of wisdom, but the path of foolishness for my life. You don't know. I don't need to know. I don't need to know because I have a promise that if you would call on him, that he would redeem you from all of your iniquities, that he would redeem you from all the iniquities of your eyes, all those times in life in which you've lacked the discipline and self-control to keep your eyes from shameful things, that he would redeem you from all the iniquities of your ears for those times in which you failed to filter out conversations, you ever been there before? And to shut down conversations to begin to turn toward gossip and slander, all those times that you failed, He will redeem you and rescue you from all the iniquities of your lips for those times in which you have used your words to hurt rather than heal others. For all those occasions in which your lips have uttered things inconsistent with the gospel, when anger has boiled over into harmful, hateful words, and whenever pride has boiled over to gossip on your lips, not just passing through your ears. For all those times in which every vow you've broken vows and that your words have betrayed your loyalty to God, that he would redeem you from those. From all the iniquities of your mind, all those careless thoughts and malicious ones as well. You ever have malicious thoughts about people? <laughs> that he would rescue you from that. He would redeem you from that, buy you back. The impure thoughts that have entered along with the, 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 what we imagine we would like to do to those who have hurt us or hate us and even, listen, this is mind-blowing, even all those times in which your mind plays back the, the, the sin that you did commit and you, your, your sinful flesh kind of spurs you on to imagine what it would have been like had you taken it just one step further, that he would even redeem you from that. From all the iniquities of your heart, the enmity against God and against his people, the pride of our hearts, the covetousness, the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness and sensuality, those desires that you have shoved so far inside that you've forgotten about at times and that you would let not even your closest confidant know. Even those that he would redeem you from. And here's why. He would redeem you from all your iniquity because though your iniquity is great, his mercy is greater. It's greater, church. It's greater. See, some of you right now are tempted to walk out of here feeling just massively beat up, like body blows all over you. That is not my intention. I want you to walk out embracing, going to and through this God who has come to you. Because his mercy is great. His steadfast love endures forever. It never has a stopping point. In fact, one old author, Joseph Philpott, said it this way, he shall redeem from all iniquities. What? All? Yes. All. Not one left. No, not a trace. Not a shade. Not a shadow of a shade. All buried. All gone. All swallowed. All blotted out. All freely pardoned. All cast behind God's back. But what keeps us from coming to him is we're not sure if he's going to cast us out, turn his back on us, or take our iniquity and put it behind his. But I want to assure you that with him, the last thing the psalmist says is that there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness and pardon that is free and that he would take your iniquity put it behind his back. So how do you respond whenever you come under conviction of sin, whenever you're experiencing guilt? Do you try and go around God by medicating or do you come to him for him to eradicate what only he can remove and eliminate from your life? See, all these promises are great, but they are not made universally to all people. They are made to his covenant people. To his covenant people. It was made to God's covenant people, Israel in the Old Testament, and God's covenant people under the new covenant, which was inaugurated with the death of his son. And that is the means by which God is redeemed. You know that? that you can't get to God other than going through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's the only way. And if you're outside of Jesus, all these promises of God coming to save and all these promises of God coming to redeem and all these promises of God coming to rescue and all this promise of God's mercy coming to you and being his people, if you're outside of Jesus and you do not trust and treasure him, then these promises are not yours. Because you're not a part of God's covenant people because you haven't come to throw yourself upon his mercy and trust Jesus to save you from that which you cannot escape on your own. God's just judgment but if you're his if you've placed your faith in him if you've come to trust in him if you've given up on running and ruling your own life and placed it in his hands you trust and treasure him then all these promises and more are yours so hope in him wait on him cry to him because this this is a God worth waiting for. Let me pray for us. Father, we come this morning thanking you for your mercy and deliverance, God, thanking you for the way that you have shown us that we, can, we don't have to run from you, God, that we can run to you, that we don't have to try and avoid you, God, but that we can come to you and through you to find what our, our, our hearts need, what our souls thirst for in the midst of our sin, that we can come to you and cry out to you that we can wait on you by hoping in your word of promise that you will be true. God, that we would not hope for things that you have not promised, God, but whenever you have made a promise, God, that we would cling to it and clench it tightly and never let it go, no matter what evidence we see to the contrary in our lives. And that we would know that you are a God abounding in steadfast love with plentiful redemption and that with you is forgiveness. and that we would live a life of reverence and awe and fear before you. Because though you could have and should have crushed us, you crushed another in our place. As your word says that you were pleased, God, I can't even wrap my mind around all of that means, but that you were pleased to crush your son in our place. It was your will. God, I pray for those in the room this morning who have never taken that step of faith to turn from running and ruling their own lives to come under your righteous and redemptive rule. For those who have never placed their hand in your hand as you've reached down to rescue and redeem them, to save them, God, that they would reach up this morning knowing that You have, your hand is right there. And they would know, they would know, not just intellectually, God, but experientially and taste your steadfast love your plentiful redemption and your forgiveness. I pray these things in Jesus' name.